civilians in space, and water on the moon. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Companies like Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic are on the brink of launching a new class of astronauts into space, ordinary people. The experiences promise to give space tourists a new perspective on the world and experience the feeling of weightlessness. So how will space tourism change the way we think about space and our planet? We'll chat with Alan Ladwig, former NASA official and author of the new book, See You in Orbit, about the history of civilians in space and the prospect of ordinary citizens leaving this planet. Then, NASA has its sights set on the moon, the South Pole of the moon to be specific, because of evidence of water. But just how much water is there at the poles of the moon? And how do we know? We'll ask our panel of expert scientists this week. But first, let's take a look at the latest space news stories making headlines. SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule has arrived here in Florida. It's the last stop before launching NASA astronauts Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley to the International Space Station. The capsule completed a critical acoustic test, certifying it for the strong aerodynamic forces it will face uphill after launching from Kennedy Space Center. It's a major milestone for NASA's commercial crew program, which seeks to end the reliance on the Russian space agency for rides to the station. SpaceX is targeting the human test launch as early as this spring. Meanwhile, NASA's other commercial partner, Boeing, is investigating a software issue that cut its uncrewed test mission of its Starliner capsule short, preventing it from docking with the station. NASA says the company will need to comb through nearly a million lines of code that drive the space capsule and evaluate its safety culture. Stay up to date on the latest space news. Visit our website, wmfe.org space, and give me a follow on Twitter for the latest space news. I'm at SpaceBrendan. Civilians in space. The idea dates back to even before the first human space launches, but the prospect of space tourism is now closer than ever, thanks to companies like Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic. It won't be the first time ordinary people go to space. During NASA's space shuttle program, two politicians went to space, and a teacher was selected to fly on Space Shuttle Challenger. There were also plans to launch reporters into space, too. One of the people responsible for the program was Alan Ladwig, former manager of NASA's Spaceflight Participant Program. His new book, See You in Orbit, chronicles the programs that sought to launch ordinary people into space. But one of NASA's programs was cut short when the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded shortly after liftoff, killing the crew of seven, including teacher in space participant Krista McAuliffe. I asked Ladwig about that tragedy and the impact it had on future civilian missions. It certainly put it on the back burner. For one thing, although the pre- President Reagan at the memorial service said, you know, nothing stops here. There will be more civilians. There will be more teachers in space. But clearly, the focus of the agency had to be on what went wrong mm-hmm. and how to return the shuttles uh, to operation safely. So it was pushed to the back burner Uh, Nonetheless, during that time, we got all kinds of letters from the public that said, oh, please don't end the program. Citizens need to fly. Uh, There were some there was some discussion in Congress about it. Uh, There were there were congressmen and senators that wanted to keep it going. There were some that said, aha, you see, space is too dangerous for citizens. So never do it again. Uh, Editorials came out. 
even from some papers that initially favored the citizen idea, came out against it. So for, for the next several years, NASA kind of kept kicking it, the can down the road mm-hmm. to not make a decision. Mm-hmm. The only thing that was decided was that Barbara Morgan, as the backup, ought to be given a chance to fly at some point. But when that would be was up in the air. Mm-hmm. Over the next several years, there were numerous reviews done internally about should the program be resumed. And it kind of uh, fell on to Dan Golden to make the decision. Richard Truly, uh, the former astronaut and admiral who flew on the shuttle, uh, actually felt that on his one of his missions, he said, oh, yeah, we could have probably had a civilian on this flight. Uh, when he was administrator, on his last day in office, he said, oh, yeah, I think we ought to fly the civilian. Well, you know, he didn't make that decision when he was there. He made it on his way out the door. And so, as I said in the book, here, Dan Golden, go long and, you know, mm-hmm. threw the hot potato to him, mm-hmm. which upset Dan a little bit because here he is, new administrator, wanting to get off on the right foot. And, and this was a very public uh, hot potato that he had to deal with early. Mm-hmm. But he initially thought he might make a decision quickly and then as he got into it and saw how complicated it was, there were at least two more reviews under him. And then what really broke things loose was in uh, 1996 when uh, Jake Garn uh, decided he wanted to fly in space. And he worked with his marine contacts at NASA to help make his case Dan Golden was initially skeptical, but said if he can pass a physical, if there is something for him to do, then he would be in favor of it. So this was discussed for about a year. And then finally, they came up with that medical experiment for uh, the senator to do. And uh, I, I wasn't against the idea, except when they kept bringing up the notion that, well, he deserved it. Mm-hmm. And my, my caution was, how do you determine who deserves a flight? If Senator Glenn deserved a flight, did other astronauts from the earlier era deserve a flight? Mm-hmm. James Irwin, Apollo astronaut James Irwin, wrote a letter, said he felt he deserved a flight as a clergyman, as a former astronaut, and as, I forget what his third reason was, uh, you know, would Buzz Aldrin come in and say he deserved a flight? Right. So I was I was skeptical of the rationale of that. Mm-hmm. So at a meeting that I got to sit in where the decision was made to fly Senator Glenn, I brought up the notion, because at that time I was the head of policy, I'd come back to NASA as a political appointee, and I said, well, if Glenn gets to fly, what about Barb Morgan? Mm-hmm. And the, the discussion was, well, that's different. I said, no, it's not. You know, John Glenn may have been an astronaut, but he hadn't been in a a space environment for over 35 years. He had no experience with the shuttle. So if if we can teach other people how to be payload specialists, then why can't we teach Barbara? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, Fred Gregory, who was the head of space flight at the time, astronaut, he was an astronaut and the head of space flight, uh, came up with a great recommendation. That was, well, let's bring Barbara in as a regular astronaut. 
She'll receive the full training. Then nobody can say we're, we're taking undue risk. And so Barbara uh, joined the astronaut corps in uh, 1998, but she didn't fly until 2007 on SDS-118. Uh, mm-hmm. Senator Glenn, of course, flew in October of 1980, 1998 on STS-95. But with that decision, it was kind of also determined that there would be no other spaceflight participants. Well, I think you answer my next question, which is a totally selfish question. Um, will there be another journalist in space program? I, I don't believe there will be uh, sponsored by NASA. Uh, the Journalist in Space program was underway at the time of the accident. In fact, I missed the actual launch of 51L because I had to get back to D.C. Uh, for a meeting on Journalist in Space. They went ahead even after the accident and had their list narrowed down to 100 uh, semi finalists, or excuse me, 100 national finalists, then 40 semi-finalists. But by April of 1986, it was determined that the program would be canceled because we just didn't know when it would be possible to fly a journalist. Mm -hmm. Journalists were rightly upset when several years later, the first journalist to fly in space was a Japanese journalist who flew on Mir, the Russian Mir space uh, station. So, there, I didn't get into it in the book because there were just too many stories to cover, but I did learn afterwards that there was a movement um, around 2003 to select an individual a- a journalist. Uh, Sean O'Keefe, the NASA administrator at the time, signed up for this one, that they'd fly an individual journalist from CNN and that in return CNN would... Des- uh, would donate money to the Challenger Center, the organization set up by the Challenger family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know about it at the time, and had I still been at NASA, I would have fought that because of the historical belief that you can't just select a single, a single individual without having some kind of competition. Not to mention, which, what do you do about all those journalists that were still capable of, of flying in space who had been part of the Journalists in Space program. Mm-hmm. So now I don't see NASA uh, flying individuals on missions as participants or any other thing. I do think that they have uh, stepped aside and signed up for what everybody's demanded over many years from the commercial sector is government get out of our way. We're going to make a business out of this. Mm-hmm. So which inspired has led us now to uh, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin with their suborbital flights and SpaceX with its commercial flights. Uh, the first of which will be sending the Japanese billionaire on a, a trip around the moon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now you see these several companies coming forward with space hotel concepts and space station concepts for the general public. Mm-hmm. In the book, you list the, uh, the finalists of the journalist and space program. And there's some, you know, some names that you expect to see on there. Jay Barbary, uh, Walter Cronkite. NPR's John Hockenberry. Uh, there's also some very interesting names on there as well as, as like Geraldo Rivera. <laughs> um, it, it's fascinating to see um, um, who made the list, um, and unfortunate to see that that probably won't happen under NASA. But with 
these commercial companies, as you've alluded to, um, they're going to allow a lot more civilian people into space because their main mission is to do that, right? With Virgin exactly. Galactic and, and with Blue Origin, um, how do you how do you foresee the future of of this playing out and and more civilians getting to have that flight and getting to experience being in space? Well, I'm I'm optimistic. Uh, incidentally, that's why it took me so long to write this book. I started in 1990. Uh, but I never had an ending, and I didn't want to have an ending that looked like there was no hope. And, you know, back in, in uh, throughout the 90s, there wasn't anything on the horizon that looked real. And it's really only been within the last, uh, say, five years that things started to look more serious. You know, you had uh, Peter Mendes and the X Prize in the mid-90s. Uh, there were predictions that there'd be civilian flights within three years of somebody winning the prize, which, of course, didn't happen. Uh, you had uh, Virgin Galactic claiming that their first flights would have been as early as 2011, I think it was. Uh, so, again, the history is re- replete with over-promises on, uh, on schedules and cost. Um, but now we're starting to look at things might be more serious and may actually happen. And we're looking forward to the first flights of suborbital uh, commercial flights this year through uh, Virgin Galactic and, and possibly Blue Origin. Um, and, it, and once you start getting more and more people, you get towards what some of us call the democratization of space. In other words, space isn't reserved for just government-sponsored scientists and engineers, but it's open to people from all kinds of walks of life, Mm -hmm. which is really what the Space Flight Participant Program had hoped to do. You know, originally we thought we might fly as many as two or three uh, civilians a year. Of course, Mm -hmm. that never panned out. So now you've got the opportunity. You've got Virgin Galactic with its, I've seen numbers anywhere from 600 to 800 people that have signed up. Uh, they're going to start taking reservations again this year for $250,000. We don't know about Blue Origin because they've not announced a ticket price or are not yet accepting tickets uh, or reservations. And we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. And is there a market there? There have been some predictions that the space tourism could be a $3 billion market by the year 2030. Uh-huh. And what we'll we'll have to find out is... When people go up on a suborbital flight and experience maybe eight minutes of weightlessness, will they come back and feel that was a a journey worthy of a quarter of a million dollars? Mm -hmm. Or will enough people uh, start flying that these companies can really bring the cost down to this elusive goal of 50,000 a year or 50,000 a flight that's been bantied about for so many years? And I'm, I'm hoping that with the success that we've been seeing with the commercial industry, uh, that some of this progress can be made. Another exciting thing is uh, an organization run by Dylan Taylor called uh, Space for Humanity. And their goal is to fly 10,000 citizens mm-hmm. on, uh, on suborbital and eventually orbital flights. Now, that's quite a, a challenge. But the nice thing would be 
you know, for the people that say, well, I can't, you know, space is still unaffordable. I can't afford $250,000. Well, through organizations like this, uh, and their intent is for the democratization of space, maybe more people will get a chance to fly because there won't, the people won't be charged. The organization will pick up the cost. Right. And, and, and then, of course... And then, of course, you'll have onesies and twosies with commercial companies doing competitions and right. uh, contests and that type of thing. Because that's that's the that's the criticism, right, Alan? Is that you know when companies like Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin say, "Well, this is space for everyone." Well, not everyone can afford two hundred thousand dollars, and not everyone can afford fifty thousand dollars, including the teachers and the journalists that were supposed right. to fly under the civilian programs. Um, right. Are you optimistic that that these organizations will be able to kind of cover those costs and really get? you know, real, you know, slices of humanity into space to have this experience and, and so-called democratize space? It, it's a wonderful question and one that always perplexes me how to answer. <laughs> uh, you know, on one hand, I don't want to be the skunk in church and say it's never going to happen. Uh, I had promised someone that I would end this, the book with a kind of a positive uh, note. I, I remain... Uh, skeptically cautious uh, because I've read the history. I've seen all the promises that have been made. I've seen the well-meaning companies come forward that we're going to fly, you know, people for $50,000. You know, there was uh, one company that had promised to fly in the 500th anniversary of Columbus. This would have been in the mid nineties uh, for $50,000, the, the entire, an alumni organization from Stanford university had signed up. They were all ready to go. Um, so, you know, I, I hope it happens, but I, I, I think I reserve judgment until somebody can come forward and actually show they can bring the cost down. Otherwise, yes, a lot of people fly. It'll be interesting, but after a while, I think people may get bored of watching other people fly. It's kind of like, you know, with the space program. After a while, I won't say people were bored watching the shuttle, but it wasn't like on, you know, other than we space advocates. But for the general public, they had other things they could focus on. Why did they want to watch other people having fun in orbit and doing things, um, And it kind of became blasé. Well, could that happen with suborbital flights? Will we get tired of seeing celebrities flying in space? There certainly seem to be a lot who have signed up. Uh, So it it remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. Uh, I hope it happens, but uh, somebody's going to have to come forward and uh, kind of show me that they can, in fact, deliver on the promise this time around. Of course, the number one person everybody's throwing their faith in is Elon Musk Mm -hmm. that, you know, he just had another great launch today, uh, sends, you know, more of his uh, satellites up on a great flight, landed the upper stages, uh, has plans to send a million people to Mars by 2050 uh, with three launches a day. That all sounds wonderful. Uh, It, it, but as even Elon Musk admits, a lot of what he says are aspirational goals. I'm waiting for aspiration and reality to meet. Well, if any of those organizations are looking for a published author and a radio journalist, they don't have to look very far, right? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. We've been speaking with Alan Ladwig. He's a former NASA official and author of the new book, See You in Orbit, Our Dream 
of spaceflight. Alan, thanks for speaking with us. Great talking to you. See you in orbit. Alan had lots more to talk about, including early efforts to launch civilian space programs. You can hear more of our conversation by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, or you can ask your smart speaker to play Are We There Yet? podcast. If you are listening to this version of the program through your podcast apps, we'll make sure you go back and listen to that bonus content that has also been pushed to your feeds. Still to come, water on the moon. Our experts bring us up to speed on the prospect of ice on the lunar surface. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA is focusing on a new moonshot called Artemis. The agency plans to land humans on the south pole of the moon because it has water. Well, how do we know that? I put the question to our expert panel on this week's I'd Like to Know segment. UCF planetary scientists and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove and Josh Caldwell, are here to answer that question. Addie begins the conversation by answering my question, just how did scientists discover water on the moon in the first place? Um, Spacecraft, for the most part, uh, which is cheeky, a little bit of a cheeky answer. But um, (laughs) so we know that there's water on the moon from orbital spacecraft. So the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter that's been orbiting the moon for over 10 years now um, from a big piece of data is from the LCROSS impactor. So there was a spacecraft um, also about 10 years ago that impacted on the lunar surface in the South Pole. And it shot up this big plume of material. And a lot of what we saw come out of that was water, the signature of water. Now, it was the impactors, which job was to crash into the surface? It was, yeah. So the LCROSS spacecraft, its its whole purpose was to crash into the lunar surface. Um, and so they had um, a, an orbiting spacecraft looking at the the plume of debris that came up and ground-based telescopes looking at it uh, to, to see what signatures they would have of different elements. We strangely saw like mercury, but also a lot of water and sort of silicon and other elements you'd expect to see. Same uh, technique was done with the deep impact mission, which launched an impactor into a comet. So you dig a hole, you get to see underneath the surface because this most of the water is, uh, well, at the, at the South Polar region, you have water adsorbed Individual molecules Mm -hmm. sticking to the rocks on the surface because that's the part of the moon where the sun don't shine. Mm -hmm. You have these permanently shadowed regions. And so it can be cold there. So if a water molecule that comes from a comet perhaps that maybe hit the moon at some point and the water evaporates or Mm -hmm. sublimates, those molecules sort of hop across the surface of the moon. And if they end up landing in a place that's very cold, they'll stick there. Mm-hmm. So you can accumulate water in the south polar region where it's permanently shadowed or shadowed for very, very long periods of time. So that's why there's particular, particular interest in that region. Mm-hmm. And what I'm gathering is if you don't know something, crash something into it, right? That's a, yes. that's a pretty good technique for uh, what we do <laughs> yeah. a lot of times in science, if we can. The large, <laughs> Just smash something into that's right, it. You'll large, figure it out. The Large Hadron Collider, you know, <laughs> find the Higgs boson, just smashing things together at really high energy. <laughs> Nature does it anyway, so we just try to repeat that a lot. All right. Yeah. So we've, we've scientists have smashed into the moon, looked at these kind of signatures of, of what chemicals are, are down there. Do we have any idea of what form this water is? Are there rivers underneath the surface of the moon? Is it ice? What is it? It's definitely not rivers. And just to mention another way that we know there's water products there is from uh, – uh, gamma ray neutron spectroscopy. So the universe provides for free very high energy photons, which can pen- penetrate into the surface, and they scatter mm-hmm. off the nuclei of different atoms different ways. And so that's an, a way to sort of 
look at the elemental composition of the stuff underneath the surface as well. So there are all those different measurements that we're saying there are some water molecules down there, but not flowing rivers. Not flowing rivers. And actually, usually what we see is evidence that there are like OHs, so an oxygen and a hydrogen, or a hydrogen. Um, most of these uh, signals we see actually tell us it's those types of molecules, not specifically H2O for water. Mm. Um, but generally, we can infer that if we see those things, there's also water there. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a lot of spectral signals that are easier to see from for like an OH signature than there are for water. Um, and so that's a lot of what we use is we see, okay, well, there's probably something that's the right chemical composition on the surface. It's the right approximate amount of those elements. So it's probably water. And a lot of the interest in water isn't for the H2O. It's for the H and for the O. Right. So as long as they're there, right? As long can... as they're there. In fact, if we found H2O, probably the first thing you do is split Break it up. It <laughs> so you could use the O to breathe. Uh -huh. And you could also use it as oxidizer for, in other words, the thing that burns the fuel that you've got. Since there's no air on the moon, you've got to bring your own oxygen. Mm -hmm. So very valuable if you know, we're exploring the moon and want to use the moon as a, a jumping off point to go someplace else like Mars or deep space. Mm -hmm. um, how sure are we of the amount that is underneath the surface? So not very sure. Um, we've seen, we can see that there are some like daily changes in the amount of uh, sort of little vapor on the surface of the moon at different places. Down in the South Pole, um, there are some newer studies that have shown that there's probably more buried water than we expected. Um, so it's maybe ice that's mixed in with the, the regolith and the dirt down there. Um, but we don't have a great grasp on exactly how much it is. And there's been some numbers like billions of tons thrown around that are probably high. Optimistically. Optimistic. <laughs> um, but there are, is, there are ways to get water out of like rocks and other materials. So mm -hmm. there's probably a good amount there that we could use for in situ resource utilization. I and that's you. using what you have to make stuff. Living need. off the land, Living so off the land, yeah. yeah. The, yeah, I think the measurements show that there's enough there to make it worthwhile. Mm-hmm at least for a while. Mm -hmm. So there's enough there to get started and do something. It's not that we definitely have confirmation. There's enough hydrogen and oxygen down there that we should be able to get something useful out of it. Mm -hmm. And how groundbreaking of a discovery was this um, after scientists smashed into the surface and found <laughs> these chemical signatures? Yeah, I mean, for a long time, we've always... It's literally groundbreaking. Literally groundbreaking. <laughs> I'm uh, glad someone caught that. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Here for the puns. The... So for a long time, we thought the moon was bone dry, quote unquote, and that there's just no water. Um, and it was interesting scientifically and as a rocky body. Um, but the idea that there is water and maybe significant amounts in these polar regions um, really changed the idea of how, like we said, how you could go and use the resources that are there, as opposed to just having to bring everything with you or um, just sort of thinking it as a place that we would maybe have to use the rocks or the other things that are there, but wouldn't have oxygen and oxidizers and fuel and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Definitely water's been discovered on Mars a lot more times than it's been discovered on the moon. True. So, yeah, when we see water on the moon, it's 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 more of a thing mm -hmm. than when we see it on Mars. <laughs> it's a thing we'll be keeping our eyes on. We've been speaking with two-thirds of the hosts of Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove and Josh Caldwell. Thank you both. Thanks. Happy to be here. That was Addie Dove and Josh Caldwell. They're planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida. They also host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Check it out wherever you download this podcast or on their website, walkaboutthegalaxy.com. And if you have a question for I'd Like to Know, send it in. Shoot me an email, are we there yet, at wmfe.org. You can also tweet the show. It's AWTYMars. 
or find us on Facebook. Search for Are We There Yet Podcast. This show is a production of WMFE and WMFV with editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.